Part three of De Profundis by Oscar Wilde. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It is the imaginative quality of Christ's own nature that makes him this palpitating centre of romance. The strange figures of poetic drama and ballad are made by the imagination of others, but out of his own imagination entirely did Jesus of Nazareth create himself. The cry of Isaiah had really no more to do with his coming than the song of the nightingale has to do with the rising of the moon, no more, though perhaps no less. He was the denial as well as the affirmation of prophecy. For every expectation that he fulfilled, there was another that he destroyed. In all beauty, says Bacon, there is some strangeness of proportion, and of those who are born of the spirit, of those, that is to say, who like himself are dynamic forces, Christ says that they are like the wind that bloweth where it listeth, and no man can tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. That is why he is so fascinating to artists. He has all the colour elements of life, mystery, strangeness, pathos, suggestion, ecstasy, love. He appeals to the temper of wonder, and creates that mood in which alone he can be understood. And to me, it is a joy to remember that if he is of imagination all compact, the world itself is of the same substance. I said in Dorian Gray that the great sins of the world take place in the brain, but it is in the brain that everything takes place. We know now that we do not see with the eyes or hear with the ears, they are really channels for the transmission, adequate or inadequate, of sense impressions. It is in the brain that the poppy is red, that the apple is odorous, that the skylark sings. Of late I have been studying with diligence the four prose poems about Christ. At Christmas I managed to get hold of a Greek testament, and every morning, after I had cleaned my cell and polished my tins, I read a little of the Gospels, a dozen verses taken by chance, anywhere. It is a delightful way of opening the day. Everyone, even in a turbulent, ill-disciplined life, should do the same. Endless repetition, in and out of season, has spoiled for us the freshness, the naivete, the simple, romantic charm of the Gospels. We hear them read far too often, and far too badly, and all repetition is anti-spiritual. When one returns to the Greek, it is like going into a garden of lilies out of some narrow and dark house. And to me, the pleasure is doubled by the reflection that it is extremely probable that we have the actual terms, the epissima verba, used by Christ. It was always supposed that Christ talked in Aramaic. Even Renan thought so. But now we know that the Galilean peasants, like the Irish peasants of our own day, were bilingual and that Greek was the ordinary language of intercourse all over Palestine, as indeed all over the Eastern world. I never liked the idea that we knew of Christ's own words only through a translation of a translation. It is a delight to me to think that as far as his conversation was concerned, Charmides might have listened to him, and Socrates reasoned with him, and Plato understood him, and that he really said, Ego, a me, ho poimain, ho kalos. 
I am the good shepherd, that, when he thought of the lilies of the field, and how they neither toil nor spin, his absolute expression was, Catamathete tacrina tu agru pos oxane o capiae ude methe, and that his last word, when he cried out, My life has been completed, has reached its fulfilment, has been perfected, was exactly as St. John tells us it was, to Teleste, no more. While in reading the Gospels, particularly that of St. John himself, or whatever early Gnostic took his name in mantle, I see the continual assertion of the imagination as the basis of all spiritual and material life. I see also that to Christ imagination was simply a form of love, and that to him love was Lord in the fullest meaning of the phrase. Some six weeks ago I was allowed by the doctor to have white bread to eat instead of the coarse black or brown bread of ordinary prison fare. It is a great delicacy. It will sound strange that dry bread could possibly be a delicacy to anyone. To me it is so much so that at the close of each meal I carefully eat whatever crumbs may be left on my tin plate or have fallen on the rough towel that one uses as a cloth so as not to soil one's table. And I do so not from hunger. I get now quite sufficient food, but simply in order that nothing should be wasted of what is given to me. So one should look on love. Christ, like all fascinating personalities, had the power of not merely saying beautiful things himself, but of making other people say beautiful things to him. And I love the story St. Mark tells us about the Greek woman, who, when, as a trial of her faith, he said to her that he could not give her the bread of the children of Israel, answered him that the little dogs, Xunorea, little dogs, it should be rendered, who are under the table eat of the crumbs that the children let fall. Most people live for love and admiration, but it is by love and admiration that we should live. If any love is shown us, we should recognise that we are quite unworthy of it. Nobody is worthy to be loved. The fact that God loves man shows us that in the divine order of ideal things it is written that eternal love is to be given to what is eternally unworthy. Or, if that phrase seems to be a bitter one to bear, let us say that everyone is worthy of love, except him who thinks that he is. Love is a sacrament that should be taken kneeling, and domine non sum dignus should be on the lips and in the hearts of those who receive it. If ever I write again, in the sense of producing artistic work, there are just two subjects on which and through which I desire to express myself. One is, Christ is the precursor of the romantic movement in life. The other is the artistic life considered in its relation to conduct. The first is, of course, intensely fascinating, for I see in Christ not merely the essentials of the supreme romantic type, but all the accidents, the willfulnesses, even, of the romantic temperament also. He was the first person who ever said to people that they should live flower-like lives. He fixed the phrase. He took children as the type of what people should try to become. He held them up as examples to their elders, which I myself have always thought the chief use of children, if what is perfect should have a use. Dante describes the soul of a man as coming from the hand of God, weeping and laughing like a little child. 
and Christ also saw that the soul of each one should be a giza di fanciulla che piangendo e ridendo pogoleggia. He felt that life was changeful, fluid, active, and that to allow it to be stereotyped into any form was death. He saw that people should not be too serious over material, common interests, that to be unpractical was to be a great thing, that one should not bother too much over affairs. The birds didn't. Why should man? He is charming when he says, Take no thought for the morrow. Is not the soul more than meat? Is not the body more than raiment? A Greek might have used the latter phrase. It is full of Greek feeling, but only Christ could have said both, and so summed up life perfectly for us. His morality is all sympathy, just what morality should be. If the only thing that he ever said had been, her sins are forgiven her because she loved much, it would have been worthwhile dying to have said it. His justice is all poetical justice, exactly what justice should be. The beggar goes to heaven because he has been unhappy. I cannot conceive a better reason for his being sent there. The people who work for an hour in the vineyard in the cool of the evening receive just as much reward as those who have toiled there all day long in the hot sun. Why shouldn't they? Probably no one deserved anything. Or perhaps they were a different kind of people. Christ had no patience with the dull, lifeless, mechanical systems that treat people as if they were things, and so treat everybody alike. For him there were no laws, there were exceptions merely, as if anybody, or anything for that matter, was like aught else in the world. That which is the very keynote of romantic art was to him the proper basis of natural life. He saw no other basis, and when they brought him one, taken in the very act of sin, and showed him her sentence written in the law, and asked him what was to be done, he wrote with his finger on the ground, as though he did not hear them, and finally, when they pressed him again, looked up and said, Let him of you who has never sinned be the first to throw the stone at her. It was worthwhile living to have said that. Like all poetical natures, he loved ignorant people. He knew that, in the soul of one who is ignorant, there is always room for a great idea. But he could not stand stupid people, especially those who are made stupid by education. People who are full of opinions, not one of which they even understand, a peculiarly modern type, summed up by Christ when he describes it as the type of one who has the key of knowledge, cannot use it himself, and does not allow other people to use it though it may be made to open the gate of God's kingdom. His chief war was against the Philistines. That is the war every child of light has to wage. Philistinism was the note of the age and community in which he lived. In their heavy inaccessibility to ideas, their dull respectability, their tedious orthodoxy, their worship of vulgar success, their entire preoccupation with the gross, materialistic side of life, and their ridiculous estimate of themselves and their importance, the Jews of Jerusalem in Christ's day were the exact counterpart of the British Philistine of our own. Christ mocked at the whited sepulchre of respectability, and fixed that phrase forever. He treated worldly success as a thing absolutely to be despised. He saw nothing in it at all. He looked on wealth as an encumbrance to a man, he would not hear of life being sacrificed to any system of thought or morals. 
he pointed out that forms and ceremonies were made for man, not man for forms and ceremonies. He took Sabbatarianism as a type of the things that should be set at naught. The cold philanthropies, the ostentatious public charities, the tedious formalism so dear to the middle-class mind, he exposed with utter and relentless scorn. To us, what is termed orthodoxy is merely a facile unintelligent acquiescence, but to them and in their hands it was a terrible and paralyzing tyranny. Christ swept it aside. He showed that the spirit alone was of value. He took a keen pleasure in pointing out to them that though they were always reading the law and the prophets, they had not really the smallest idea of what either of them meant. In opposition to their tithing of each separate day into the fixed routine of prescribed duties, as they tithe, mint and rue, he preached the enormous importance of living completely for the moment. Those whom he saved from their sins are saved simply for beautiful moments in their lives. Mary Magdalene, when she sees Christ, breaks the rich vase of alabaster that one of her seven lovers has given her and spills the odorous spices over his tired, dusty feet, and for that one moment's sake sits forever with Ruth and Beatrice in the tresses of the snow-white rose of paradise. All that Christ says to us, by the way of a little warning, is that every moment should be beautiful, that the soul should always be ready for the coming of the bridegroom, always waiting for the voice of the lover. Philistinism being simply that side of man's nature that is not illuminated by the imagination. He sees all the lovely influences of life as modes of light. The imagination itself is the world of light. The world is made by it, and yet the world cannot understand it. That is because the imagination is simply a manifestation of love and it is love and the capacity for it that distinguishes one human being from another. But it is when he deals with a sinner that Christ is most romantic in the sense of most real. The world had always loved the saint as being the nearest possible approach to the perfection of God. Christ, through some divine instinct in him, seems to have always loved the sinner as being the nearest possible approach to the perfection of man. His primary desire was not to reform people, any more than his primary desire was to relieve suffering. To turn an interesting thief into a tedious, honest man was not his aim. He would have thought little of the Prisoners' Aid Society and other modern movements of the kind. The conversion of a publican into a Pharisee would not have seemed to him a great achievement. But in a manner not yet understood of the world, he regarded sin and suffering as being in themselves beautiful, holy things and modes of perfection. It seems a very dangerous idea. It is. All great ideas are dangerous. That it was Christ's creed admits of no doubt. That it is the true creed, I don't doubt myself. Of course the sinner must repent. But why? Simply because otherwise he would be unable to realize what he had done. The moment of repentance is the moment of initiation. More than that, it is the means by which one alters one's past. The Greeks thought that impossible. They often say, in their gnomic aphorisms, even the gods cannot alter the past. Christ showed that the commonest sinner could do it, that it was the one thing he could do. Christ, had he been asked, would have said, I feel quite certain about it, that the moment the prodigal son fell on his knees and wept, he made his having wasted his substance with harlots 
his swine herding and hungering for the husks they ate, beautiful and holy moments in his life. It is difficult for most people to grasp the idea. I dare say one has to go to prison to understand it. If so, it may be worthwhile going to prison. There is something so unique about Christ. Of course, just as there are false dawns before the dawn itself, and winter days so full of sudden sunlight that they will cheat the wise crocus into squandering its gold before its time, and make some foolish bird to call its mate to build on barren boughs, so there are Christians before Christ. For that we should be grateful. The unfortunate thing is that there have been none since. I make one exception. St. Francis of Assisi. But then God had given him at his birth the soul of a poet, as he himself, when quite young, had in mystical marriage taken poverty as his bride, and with the soul of a poet and the body of a beggar he found his way to perfection not difficult. He understood Christ, and so he became like him. We do not require the Liber Conformitatum to teach us that the life of St. Francis was the true Imitatio Christi, a poem compared to which the book of that name is merely prose. Indeed, that is the charm about Christ. When all is said, he is just like a work of art. He does not really teach one anything, but by being brought into his presence, one becomes something, and everybody is predestined to his presence. Once at least in his life, each man walks with Christ to Emmaus. As regards the other subject, the relation of the artistic life to conduct, it will no doubt seem strange to you that I should select it. People point to Reading Jail and say, that is where the artistic life leads a man. Well, it might lead him to worse places. The more mechanical people, to whom life is a shrewd speculation, depending on a careful calculation of ways and means, always know where they are going and go there. They start with the ideal desire of being the parish beadle. In whatever sphere they are placed, they succeed in being the parish beadle, and no more. A man whose desire is to be something separate from himself, to be a member of parliament, or a successful grocer, or a prominent solicitor, or a judge, or something equally tedious, invariably succeeds in being what he wants to be. That is his punishment. Those who want a mask have to wear it. But with the dynamic forces of life, and those in whom those dynamic forces become incarnate, it is different. People whose desire is solely for self-realization never know where they are going. They can't know. In one sense of the word, it is of course necessary, as the Greek oracle said, to know oneself, that is the first achievement of knowledge. But to recognize that the soul of a man is unknowable, is the ultimate achievement of wisdom. The final mystery is oneself. When one has weighed the sun in the balance and measured the steps of the moon and mapped out the seven heavens star by star, there still remains oneself. Who can calculate the orbit of his own soul? When the sun went out to look for his father's asses, he did not know that a man of God was waiting for him with the very chrism of coronation and that his own soul was already the soul of a king. I hope to live long enough, and to produce work of such a character, that I shall be able, at the end of my days, to say, yes, this is just where the artistic life leads a man. Two of the most perfect lives I have come across in my own experience are the lives of Verlaine 
and of Prince Kropotkin, both of them men who have passed years in prison. The first, the one Christian poet since Dante, the other a man with the soul of that beautiful white Christ which seems coming out of Russia. And for the last seven or eight months, in spite of succession of great troubles reaching me from the outside world, almost without intermission, I have been placed in direct contact with a new spirit working in this prison through man and things that has helped me beyond any possibility of expression in words. So that while for the first year of my imprisonment I did nothing else and can remember doing nothing else but wring my hands in impotent despair and say, what an ending, what an appalling ending. Now I try to say to myself, and sometimes when I'm not torturing myself, do really and sincerely say, what a beginning, what a wonderful beginning. It may really be so. It may become so. If it does, I shall owe much to this new personality that has altered every man's life in this place. You may realise it when I say that had I been released last May, as I tried to be, I would have left this place loathing it and every official in it, with a bitterness of hatred that would have poisoned my life. I have had a year longer of imprisonment, but humanity has been in the prison along with us all, and now... When I go out, I shall always remember great kindnesses that I have received here from almost everybody. And on the day of my release, I shall give many thanks to many people and ask to be remembered by them in turn. The prison style is absolutely and entirely wrong. I would give anything to be able to alter it when I go out. I intend to try, but there is nothing in the world so wrong but that the spirit of humanity, which is the spirit of love, the spirit of the Christ who is not in churches, may make it, if not right, at least possible to be born without too much bitterness of heart. I know also that much is waiting for me outside that is very delightful. From what St. Francis of Assisi calls my brother the wind and my sister the rain. Lovely things, both of them, down to the shop windows and sunsets of great cities, if I made a list of all that still remains to me, I don't know where I should stop, for indeed God made the world just as much for me as for anyone else. Perhaps I may go out with something that I had not got before. I need not tell you that to me reformations in morals are as meaningless and vulgar as reformations in theology. But while to propose to be a better man is a piece of unscientific cant, to have become a deeper man is the privilege of those who have suffered. And such, I think, I have become. If, after I am free, a friend of mine gave a feast and did not invite me to it, I should not mind a bit. I can be perfectly happy by myself, with freedom, flowers, books, and the moon, who could not be perfectly happy. Besides, feasts are not for me any more. I have given too many to care about them, that side of life is over for me, very fortunately, I dare say. But if, after I am free, a friend of mine had a sorrow and refused to allow me to share it, I should feel it most bitterly. If he shut the doors of the house of mourning against me, I would come back again and again and beg to be admitted, so that I might share in what I was entitled to share in. If he thought me unworthy, unfit to weep with him, I should feel it as the most poignant humiliation as the most terrible mode in which disgrace could be inflicted on me. But that could not be. 
I have a right to share in sorrow, and he who can look at the loveliness of the world and share its sorrow and realise something of the wonder of both is in immediate contact with divine things and has got as near to God's secret as anyone can get. Perhaps there may come into my art also, no less than into my life, a still deeper note, one of greater unity of passion and directness of impulse. Not width, but intensity, is the true aim of modern art. We are no longer in art concerned with the type. It is with the exception that we have to do. I cannot put my sufferings into any form they took, I need hardly say. Art only begins where imitation ends, but something must come into my work, of fuller memory, of words perhaps, of richer cadences, of more curious effects, of simpler architectural order, of some aesthetic quality, at any rate. When Marcius was torn from the scabbard of his limbs, della vagina della membra sue, to use one of Dante's most terrible Tacitian phrases, he had no more song, the Greek said. Apollo had been victor, the lyre had vanquished the reed, but perhaps the Greeks were mistaken. I hear in much modern art the cry of Marcius. It is bitter in Baudelaire, sweet and plaintive in Lamartine, mystic in Verlaine. It is in the deferred resolutions of Chopin's music. It is in the discontent that haunts Burne Jones's women. Even Matthew Arnold, whose song of Callicles tells of the triumph of the sweet persuasive lyre and the famous final victory in such a clear note of lyrical beauty, has not a little of it. In the troubled undertone of doubt and distress that haunts his verses, neither Goethe nor Wordsworth could help him, though he followed each in turn, and when he seeks to mourn for Thyrsus or to sing of the scholar Gypsy, it is the reed that he has to take for the rendering of his strain. But whether or not the Phrygian fawn was silent, I cannot be. Expression is as necessary to me as leaf and blossoms are to the black branches of the trees that show themselves above the prison walls and are so restless in the wind. Between my art and the world there is now a wide gulf, but between art and myself there is none. I hope at least that there is none. To each of us different fates are meted out. My lot has been one of public infamy, of long imprisonment, of misery, of ruin, of disgrace but I am not worthy of it, not yet, at any rate. I remember that I used to say that I thought I could bear a real tragedy if it came to me with purple pole and a mask of noble sorrow, but that the dreadful thing about modernity was that it put tragedy into the raiment of comedy, so that the great realities seemed commonplace or grotesque or lacking in style. It is quite true about modernity. It has probably always been true about actual life. It is said that all martyrdoms seemed mean to the looker-on. The nineteenth century is no exception to the rule. Everything about my tragedy has been hideous, mean, repellent, lacking in style. Our very dress makes us grotesque. We are the zanies of sorrow. We are clowns whose hearts are broken. We are specially designed to appeal to the sense of humour. On November 13th, 1895, I was brought down here from London. From two o'clock till half-past two on that day, 
I had to stand on the centre platform of Clapham Junction in convict dress, and handcuffed for the world to look at. I had been taken out of the hospital ward without a moment's notice being given to me. Of all possible objects, I was the most grotesque. When people saw me, they laughed. Each train as it came up swelled the audience. Nothing could exceed their amusement. That was, of course, before they knew who I was. As soon as they had been informed, they laughed still more. For half an hour, I stood there in the grey November rain, surrounded by a jeering mob. For a year after that was done to me, I wept every day at the same hour and for the same space of time. That is not such a tragic thing as possibly it sounds to you. To those who are in prison, tears are a part of every day's experience. A day in prison on which one does not weep is a day on which one's heart is hard, not a day on which one's heart is happy. Well, now I am really beginning to feel more regret for the people who laughed than for myself. Of course, when they saw me, I was not on my pedestal. I was in the pillory. But it is a very unimaginative nature that only cares for people on their pedestals. A pedestal may be a very unreal thing. A pillory is a terrific reality. They should have known also how to interpret sorrow better. I have said that behind sorrow there is always sorrow. It were wiser still to say that behind sorrow there is always a soul. And to mock at a soul in pain is a dreadful thing. In the strangely simple economy of the world, people only get what they give, and to those who have not enough imagination to penetrate the mere outward of things and feel pity, what pity can be given, save that of scorn? End of part three.